Throughout the history of the Christian church, there are seven sayings that Jesus said on the cross from the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the traditional understanding is that these seven sayings were said in the following order. First, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, today you will be with me in paradise. Third, woman, behold your son. And then to his disciple, here is your mother. Fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, I thirst. Sixth, it is finished. Jesus says one more thing as he hangs on the cross before breathing his last breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died with these words on his lips. I propose that we live with them on our hearts. And in order to do that, I believe we need to answer three questions about this passage. Why, what, and how? Why did Jesus say these words? What do they mean? And how can these dying words of Jesus on his lips transform your heart as you live now? First, why? Why did Jesus say these words? The first story of the Bible, page 1, Genesis chapter 1, recounts that God finished the work of creation by speaking over the course of six days. Then, on the seventh day, he had one more thing to do. And Genesis 2-2 says, he rested. Not as in he took a nap because God was tired from all of the work of creation. A similar synonym in Hebrew for this word rest, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. Nuach is a similar word used on the Ten Commandments for take up the Sabbath and rest. By studying these two words together, we can see that the idea of rest for God was about settling. Settling into creation. I believe it's appropriate that when you understand God rested on the seventh day, he took up residence on the earth. For six days, he worked. And then on the seventh day, he entered into the joy of his work. Perhaps then, it is not a coincidence that right before Luke tells us this seventh and final word, as Jesus hung on the cross, and perhaps just shortly after he declared in John's gospel, it is finished, the very same word in Greek in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God finished all that he had done in creation, and he rested. Perhaps it's not coincidence that Luke says, the temple curtain torn in two, and then he said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, Jesus spoke about how his work of salvation was finished. The very first word, Father, forgive them, offers forgiveness. The fourth word vocalizes forsakenness in the cry of dereliction as he absorbs the weight of sin and bears the wrath of God. His sixth word declares victory and triumph, announcing that the death on the cross put an end to the present evil age, the world as we know it. But his work of new creation and the age to come began as he finished the work on the cross. So what do you do after you finish a work of new creation? What did Jesus do? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. He rested, like God did when he entered into earth and settled in, God and man dwelling together in harmony. In a similar way, Jesus finished the work of creation. Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my life over to you. And with these words, he breathed his last. And what was the very last line that Jenny read for us in Luke 23? And it was Sabbath. Jesus was buried on the Sabbath day. He rested and entered into the presence of his father. His body, his soul, his spirit, all of his being was now being held into the care of the father's hands. When he descended into the dead, the father cared for him. When he rose from the dead, it was powerfully demonstrating the father's care for the spirit and the body of Jesus. And 40 days later, when he ascended into the heavens, God and man dwelled together again as they were meant to in Genesis chapter 2. Why did Jesus say these words? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, I think we're only scratching the surface. But surely one reason is because Jesus here in these words is telling us about the reconciliation between God and man, between heaven and earth. The disharmony and separation that began as a result of our sin in Genesis 3 is now being repaired by the work of Jesus on the cross. So again, Jesus died with these lips, with these words on his lips. I propose we live with them in our hearts. And the reason Jesus said these words, well, the simplest answer is because they're from Psalm 31. 31 verse 5. Jesus said these words because he memorized and he meditated upon Holy Scripture. Do you realize of the seven sayings of Jesus, two of them are clearly, without a doubt, quotations of Psalms, quotations of Scripture. I don't think you're going to understand why Jesus would say these words until you first understand where they came from. And for that, we need to read Psalm 31. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 31, where I will read the entire psalm from beginning to end. And as you've probably gathered, we're going to key in on verse 5 and understand why Jesus said this particular verse from this specific psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David. 
In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. May your face Shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. And worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord God, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Well, friends, the, the grass withers and the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Why did Jesus say Psalm 31:5, "Father, into your hand I commit my spirit." 
what the bare minimum, it's because he's quoting Psalm 31. So what does Psalm 31 mean? Second question. To understand why Jesus is thinking about this psalm, we need to basically understand Psalm 31. And as we just read it, I think it's obvious to see David is in distress. He is persecuted, and this is called a psalm of lament. He's crying out in desperation for the Lord, and he is telling God all of the distresses in his life. Look down again at verse 9. See very clearly the situation for which David finds himself. He says, I'm in distress. Look at the poetic phrase of his eyes wasting away. He's crying so much that it's like his whole body is wasting away from his grief. Verse 10, he says that my life is spent in sorrow and his years with sighing and therefore his strength is failing because of his own sins and his bones wasting away. But it's not just his own sin. Verse 11 makes clear that he has outside adversaries that are against him, even his neighbors, acquaintances. Verse 12 says he has been forgotten as one who is like they're dead, like a broken pot on the ground, a vessel that has no purpose anymore. That's what he feels like as a human being. He hears whispers, terrors, every side. He's surrounded by schemes and plots to take his life. And in the middle of all of that, he declares, verses 14 and 15, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hand. So therefore, I am confident of your rescue from the hand of my enemies. And there it is. I think a key idea of this psalm is a play on words. A declaration of God's trust pictured by the strength, the might, the sovereignty of his hand in contrast to David feeling as if he is being held by his enemies. My times are in your hand, God. I trust you, even though it feels like right now I am swallowed up by the hand of my enemies. So this is what I believe is in the context of our all-important verse, verse 5. Father, Jesus says. That's added. That's not in verse 5, as you see in Psalm 31. As he prays, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. In the same way that David needs rescued and redeemed from hands of evil men, so Jesus is hanging on a cross because of the hands of evil men. And I believe that Jesus' quotation of this psalm is to reference for all of us his absolute surrender of control to the Father and trust of his entire life, being, soul, however you might summarize what it means to live and exist. As Jesus taught his own disciples, it's better to lose one's life and be saved than to try and gain one's life and then lose it. What does it forfeit a man to gain the whole world but then lose his soul? Jesus is losing everything, even the very breath from his lungs, but he is gaining the Father's hand. He is trusting in the sovereignty of God's hand. 
Our psalm teaches, preaches that the sovereignty of God is always in control, even when he doesn't feel like it. Do you remember Daniel declaring in Daniel chapter 4? It's actually on the words, I think, of Nebuchadnezzar, but the book of Daniel declaring the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are uh, but nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And then here's the line. None can stay or control God's hand. No one can turn to God and say, what have you done? David puts his hope in the sovereignty of God when he is being distressed because he knows that ultimately no one can turn to God and say, who do you think you are? What are you doing in my life? The world revolves around me. David has hope because of the sovereignty of God's hands. David has hope because of the stability of God's hands. God is a rock, a refuge, a strong fortress, verse 2 says. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will uphold you by the hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Do you know the safety and the security of God's hand? His sovereign hand is stable like a fortress, like a rock. Jesus says that the Father has given me all of the disciples and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. God's hands are sovereign. They're stable. They're strong. When David's strength fails, he turns to the Lord and he tells all of the people in verse 24, put your strength in this sovereign God. He is our refuge. The word refuge is stronghold, a place of strength. So do you know when you look up into the heavens that the heavens declare the glory of God and they proclaim the work of his hands? Or as Isaiah 64, 8 declares, Lord, you are our father. We are clay and you are our potter and all of us are the work of your hand. That moment, I think you should be meditating on Genesis 2 and God, the potter, the, the, the man forming from the ground like a pot by a potter, taking the clay and working the dirt of the ground into a human. This is God's hands, sovereign, stable, strong, safe. In you I take refuge. In you I can depend and trust and lean. Psalm 18.35 says, your right hand upholds me and it's your gentleness that makes me great. Safe hands. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Don't be anxious for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Do you see why David turns to the hand of the Lord as an image as he is being held by the grip of evil men and says, into your hand I commit my spirit My days are in your hand because they are sovereign, they are stable, they are strong, they are safe, and they produce salvation. In our psalm, verse 2 says that he is a God who rescues, a fortress that is safe and saves. 
He is a faithful God. The other side of Jesus' quotation is, into your hand I commit my spirit, for you are the faithful God who redeems. In the same way that David needs salvation, Jesus Christ hung on the cross and needed God the Father to save him from death. And so he is confident that God's hand will do just that. That it is in good hands. He is well cared for in the hands of God because Exodus 13.3 says, as Moses declared to his people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, because it was by the powerful hand of Yahweh the Lord God who brought you out from this place. God's hand powerfully saves. Sovereign, stable, strong, safe, saving hands. Why would Jesus quote Psalm 31.5? Well, if you understand anything about what it means, it fits perfectly. No wonder he's meditating on a psalm like Psalm 31.5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is trusting in the Father's sovereignty to bring him through distress because of the confidence he has in his care. That's why, that's what, so how. How do the words of the dying Jesus hanging on the cross before he breathes his last change your heart so that we can hear those words on his lips but live with them in our hearts? J.C. Ryle helps. Meditating on Luke chapter 23, he makes the following comment. There is a sense in which our Lord's words supply a very practical lesson to all Christians. They show us the manner in which death should be met by the children of God. They afford an example. They afford an example which every believer should try and follow. Like our master, we should not be afraid to confront the king of terror death itself. We should regard death as its vanquished enemy whose sting has been taken away by the death of Christ. We should think of death as a foe who can hurt our body but only for a little while. After that, there is nothing more that he can do. We should await the day of our death as it approaches and do so with calmness and patience and believe that when our flesh fails, our soul will be held in his hand. No wonder this is why Stephen said as he was dying, pelted with rocks, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Happy indeed are those who have this as their lasting end. Do you understand that in the same way that David needed to be rescued and redeemed from evil men, Jesus needed to be rescued? from evil men and put his trust in the hands of God. J.C. Ryle says this is an example for us to follow in his steps. By all means, it is a substitutionary act of incredible faith that you and I can only pray that God's spirit will allow us the strength in those moments to achieve. But I do believe by his spirit He enables and strengthens us to follow in these steps as 
steps of repentance and faith. I wonder how many of us, as we live in our life and in this world, my times are in your hands. Perhaps Psalm 31 should be one of those psalms that you return to again and again and say, this time, right now, Father, my life, my time is in your hands. Is there anything going on right now in your life, in the world, that's different, oh, let's say two, three years ago? Were you any less cared for by the Father two years ago, February 2020, than you were March 2020? Our times, every day, every second, the Father holds with his sovereign, strong, stable, saving hands. And in the same way that Jesus puts his hope and his trust in the ability for Jesus to be rescued and delivered from evil men, so too you, no matter what you are going through, no matter what times you are in. But pastor, what if the hands of God allow absolute evil to take place? What if I cannot make sense how he is turning this wonderfully, turning this terrible thing into a wonderful good? What if his hands allow suffering and layers upon layers of suffering, not just one bad thing, but a continual onslaught of suffering where you feel like, I can't take it anymore. I give you this pithy word as a proverb. Jesus Christ did not necessarily trace the Father's hand. He trusted his heart. The way of Christ was to allow Jesus to be dealt into the hands of wicked, evil men. Horrific suffering. Jesus, you could say, for a moment, it seemed like, earthly speaking, was in the hands of men, Matthew 17, 22. Or explicitly, Matthew 26, 45, he was taken and delivered by the hands of sinners. Or in Luke 24, it's explained that by the hands of sinful men or lawless men in Acts chapter 2, 22 to 23. The death of Jesus was certainly and clearly done by wicked, lawless, evil men. But the very same breath, Scripture says that this was the Father's plan from before the foundation of the world. And therefore, the way for Christ into the hands of the Father was through the hands of sinners. So when you cannot trace God's hand and you feel so confused as to what God might be doing, trust his heart. Bank on his character. Consider his sovereignty. Remind yourself of the stability and strength and safety and security and salvation that he accomplishes with hands. And of course... Be like Thomas in your doubts. Show me the scars in your hands. And gaze into the hands of Jesus Christ and notice this is what sovereignty, strength, 
stability and ultimately salvation looks like in the hands of God. Some of you might have been wondering when I was reading J.C. Ryle why I started to have trouble reading the quote. It wasn't necessarily the quote. As I was reading J.C. Ryle, I was reminded of what I was knowing I was going to share with you to conclude this message. How do we know that God's salvation plan brings about new creation with forgiveness of sins? And for those who would repent and put their trust in Jesus so that you would entrust your life into the sovereign hand of God, surrendering absolute control of everything to him, that you can stare death in the face like Jesus did and follow in his steps. Well, three months ago was this last week when my mom passed. And... Many of you were here in this building when we did her memorial service and I preached a message and concluded that message that my mom taught me the hope of the gospel by staring death in the face with utter peace and calm. When many of you who were here for that service heard me explain that point, I shared that my mom's final words to me, her dying words, her final words before her last breath. Phil, I know that you're sad, but I'm really excited about this. I believe this is my mother's translation of Father into your hands. I commit my spirit. Our family traveled to the Maryland, D.C. area and we did a second service a few weeks later. As many of you know, when someone close to you passes, you're kind of numb. You haven't really taken it in. And I gave the same message to all our friends and family. But when I got to this last point, I had a few weeks to think about what I'd said. And so most of you didn't hear this. And I wanted to just finish our time with a little excerpt from a funeral service in Maryland. I asked the question, why would my mom say this to me? How could anyone say this? How can you look at your son and say, Phil, I know you're sad, but I'm really excited about this. My best shot to answer that question is that this is not some Christian cliche. This is not just the kind words of a grieving son trying to say some nice things to help people feel better when they're sad. I'm convinced that my mom looked at the worst thing in the world, death, and told me that it was going to be the best thing in the world because for years she was trained to think this way. Throughout her life, she died a thousand deaths. Before October 25th, she suffered the sins of this world. And through those sufferings, she put her hope in a God who would care for her. She experienced shame and embarrassment more times than I can count. But she knew 
that her God was also mocked, scorned, and shamed to agree that made her shame and embarrassment seem like it was nothing. She knew what it was like to pray for healing and not get the answer in the time or in the way that she was wanting, but persevered in faith. She held on to hope because, of course, God was holding her. To be more specific, my mom knew that her Savior prayed and asked, Father, take this cup from me. And he did not. But Jesus prayed for the Father to do his will and that that will would be good. And my mom knew that when she died, she would be welcomed and accepted because of Jesus. Because Christ was abandoned and rejected. So Phil, I know that you're sad. But I'm really excited about this. How can someone say that? I think you have to practice it every day of your life. Jesus died with these words on his lips. I propose we live with these words on our heart every day. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we want to thank you now in a prayer of thanks that you have revealed yourself to us. You have told us in your word that you are worthy of our trust, that your sovereignty is a rock of refuge for the chaotic days of our lives, and that our time, whatever time that may be, it is in your hands. Father, we thank you that the hands, the nail-pierced hands of Jesus shout and proclaim that you know suffering and that Jesus went through suffering so that when we follow in his steps, we can trust that we are in good hands. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that applies God's word into our hearts. We thank you that you are near even when you feel far. We thank you that you can be trusted even when you can't be traced. We thank you that you are our source of salvation, safety, security, and that no one can snatch us out of your hand. We want to pray that if there are any who are here that do not know the safety and peace and security of your hands, they would turn from their sins. They would repent of trying to deal with the world by their own hands and surrender control to you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.